in 1 Samuel 13, um, what I want to begin discussing uh, this morning is the ideas, and really the ideas, they work together, of confession and repentance. Um, and what I wanted to talk about a little bit this morning is the contrast of King Saul and his successor, King David. We read this morning, uh, Josh read for us Psalm 51, which ends up being the, uh, the inner workings of David. It's, he's kind of revealing how he feels and how he's thought about his sin. In Psalm 51, we specifically know, unlike many psalms, exactly what was on David's mind when he wrote that psalm. It was his sin with Bathsheba and how he uh, sinned many times over, really, in sleeping with her and killing her husband and taking her for his wife. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in this lesson as we talk about David's example for us. Um, but there was a, a proverb that I, in trying to think about this topic, that I encountered that I thought was kind of encapsulated everything I wanted to say this this morning. And I'll just read it for you and you can listen to it. It's just one, uh, kind of like one sentence as Proverbs often are. Uh, in in t- Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 it says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And that's really the idea of a confession and repentance, right? Whoever confesses and forsakes, and that's really what repentance is, right? To change your mind about it, and so you leave it behind, you forsake it. And so that proverb, I guess, distills everything I want to say, right? If you want to be prosperous before God in the most pure sense, the most true sense of what it is to be prosperous, right? You need to confess and forsake um, to find mercy, right? Because, uh, and there's a lot of practical sides to that, but I want to, I want to illustrate that in the lives of Saul and the life of David. Um, and so in first Samuel 13, I'll give you a little bit of the background of this passage, uh, in first Samuel 13, if you're not already there. If I can get there, I keep flipping past it. Um, A little bit of the background here is immediately in this chapter, we're going to begin talking about how Saul's fighting against uh, the the Philistines here. But what's led him to this point is that he became king two years prior. The beginning of chapter 13 points us to that. And some of the, the numbers can get a little difficult to track because there's some ambiguity to exactly how much time has passed. But it seems like maybe just a couple years Um, And in that time, he's fought admirably to protect God's people from their enemies. Like from almost the moment he was appointed king by God through Samuel, the prophet and priest that was kind of operating at that time. He had been fighting these battles, defending the Israelites from various enemies. And so by the time you get to chapter 15, the Philistines are the, the most immediate threat. They've actually invaded some of the territory of God's people. And so as uh, Saul here is preparing to fight back, he only has a small, relatively small, band of uh, men, his army, to to fight with. And when he realizes, he and his army realize how many Philistines there are that are about to fight them, the small number of men that he have begin to desert. And when you read uh, at the very beginning of the chapter in verse 4, or sorry, verse 5, it describes how many Philistines there are. 
and it, it, it even throws out things like innumerable. Um, and that's not a very encouraging thing if you have a small force yourself to the commentary to be on the opposing army that there was many, many people and in some respects they were innumerable. And when you get to verse 6, it says that Saul's army, right, began to hide themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and cisterns even, which giant pots or water-holding places. And some even crossed the fords of the Jordan to the to the land of Gad and Gilead. And so his army is hiding themselves and even deserting in light of the army that they're up against, right? That's the background of what we get to when we pick up reading in verse 8. And so just think about that. Saul's been king for a couple of years. He's been a valiant warrior for his people. He's been defending the Israelites. God has approved of him mostly up until this point, but we're beginning to see that facade of approval from God is beginning to crack. And Saul's making negative choices, sinful choices. And verse 8, where we're going to pick up reading, is the biggest, most obvious sinful choice that Saul makes up to this point in his reign. Beginning in verse 8, he, being Saul, right, he waited seven days in the time appointed by Samuel. And this is going back to chapter 10. Um, He confers with Samuel the priest and prophet. And Samuel tells him ahead of time, when you go to Gilgal... Wait for me seven days, and the seventh day I'm going to appear. I'll offer sacrifices for you and your army, and then you can fight. And so here he is in Gilgal about to fight the Philistines. He feels the pressure of his army deserting, and this is what happens. So he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said uh, to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For uh, For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. So in Second Samuel or First Samuel chapter 10, you see this conversation originally happened between Saul and Samuel. And here we fast forward a couple chapters and some time has passed, and Saul's very much aware of like the agreement, the commandment, right? He waited the seven days. But when he started to really feel the pressure of what was around him, like the army was visible and the people could see it, and his own army started feeling that pressure and they started hiding and running, he started getting a little antsy, right? And so he ends up getting impatient and offering the sacrifice that really a priest only had the authority to offer on their behalf. And specifically Samuel said, I would be the one to do it. And so in this instance, we have 
a very plain uh, account of sin on Saul's part. And so as we're talking about confession and repentance this morning, um, that always relates to sin, right? Like we confess the sin that we have, the error that we've committed. And in modern terms, right, when you confess, it usually means you're confessing guilt of a crime, right? Like in the eyes of the land, like you've broken a law. And so to confess that would be to say, okay, I acknowledge that I have guilt according to this law, right? I'm confessing that. But if you were to then repent, right, the reason these two ideas are joined, that they're really kind of one idea is to repent, is really to um, ad, or agree to not do that anymore, right? So if you, if you break a law, you can confess that. I'm guilty of breaking the law, and I promise that I won't break that law anymore. I'm going to do my best to live in light of and within that law, right? That's the kind of idea of confession and repentance as far as Atlanta, or the United States is concerned, right? And when it comes to God, it's a very similar concept. And so you can't have repentance without confession. Like, what are you changing your mind about? What are you agreeing to change if you never acknowledged a fault in the first place, right? And so you can't get to, you can't get to repentance without the avenue of confession, like realizing the guiltiness of some crime, of some fault or sin, right, as the Bible talks about it, an error. You can have confession without actually repenting, right? Like we can see that happen, but you can never have real repentance without confession. So they're, they're tied together, and that's why I wanted to talk about them both in one instance. And so, so this is Saul's opportunity to do just that. In fact, when Samuel comes to him, he says, what have you done? And this is Saul's opportunity to be like, you know what? I didn't do what you told me to do. I've broken that commandment. And that's how exactly how Samuel refers to it, right? He refers to it in verse uh, 13. You've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord. So Saul could have said, you know what? I was a fool. I am guilty of not keeping the command of the Lord. And then he could have gone to the next step and said, I repent, I've sinned, like help me change my path, right? But what does Saul actually do in this text? He just kind of hears, yeah, he just kind of makes excuses. He just hears what Saul or what Samuel is telling him, you've been foolish, you've broken the command of the Lord. And he runs through this like litany of excuses, right? Look at what his excuses are. Um, Beginning in verse uh, nine, or sorry, verse 10. He offers them. Samuel comes to him and greets him. They greet. Samuel says, what have you done? Saul says, verse 11, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, that's the first part, right? Like that panicky scene, everybody's fleeing. I started to worry, right? The next part is that you did not come within the days appointed. All right. So he's sort of blaming Samuel, You didn't come when you said you were going to come, all right? The next part is, and that the Philistines had mustered, right? They had gathered. They were ready to fight at this place. Like he was unprepared for that possibility, it seems. And he felt the pressure of it. So that's one of his reasons. 
And so then he says in verse 12, well, then he made a decision, right? I haven't sought the favor of the Lord. And so he decides to take it into his own hands. But look at how he says that. I forced myself, right? What about this is going to lead him to confess anything, you know? Like he's been presented with a sin. And I think to some degree we can relate to Saul's anxiety. And he seems very relatable in that we're like, well, he felt the pressure. He did the best he could. He wanted the right things. Like it's good to want the favor of the Lord before an endeavor, right? Like I want that. If God says that he would bless me doing something, then I need to seek that blessing before I do it. I I should relate to Saul wanting that. But the bottom line was that he broke the command of the Lord. And whatever excuses Saul had seemingly, right, in our judgment, were fair, they didn't change the bottom line that he was in sin, right? And uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this, but I want to learn some of the negative ones. Um, Impatience, being panicky, anxiety are not excuses for your sin, right? Um, That's an obvious lesson to learn from Saul. We may have reasons for why we did something. And even in doing that, we kind of knew that it wasn't right. And we forced ourselves to do it because of the circumstances. And even we didn't even really like it, but we we're like, it was the worst of two evils kind of mentality, right? You can see Saul kind of thinking that. Is it worse to go without the favor of the Lord or is it worse to not wait on Samuel? Well, my hand was forced and I decided the favor of the Lord was better and I wasn't going to wait on Samuel. He broke the command of the Lord. We don't need to make that same mistake, right? But importantly, as confession and repentance, and I want to talk about that, when those come into play, what's important to learn from this lesson is when you are confronted with your sin, don't make excuses. Don't do it. Like if you have clearly, as Samuel presents to Saul, you knew the commandment of the Lord and you did something else, There is no excuse that you can offer, and no matter how legitimate it may seem in the circumstances, that you can make for breaking the commandment of the Lord. One example of this uh, that we might think of that we could probably relate to is like that little white lie that probably is going to serve a bigger purpose that seems better. Like, but did I lie? Like, that's the one that I always struggle with. That's like, well... Yeah, but it was to not hurt someone's feelings or it was to do this or that. Well, like, did you uphold the truth? Were you honest? Or did you propagate falsehood, right? That's one example. I also have another one. Um, when I had uh, siblings that and cousins that were like siblings. I grew up around a lot of peers, and so there was a lot of name-calling involved in those experiences, when you get mad at someone, you call them a name, right? When you're a kid, call them stupid or an idiot or dumb or ugly or whatever, just to kind of get them off your back and feel good about yourself. Like, yeah, I got them, right? I can't tell you how many instances where there'd be a lot of that going on and only one of us were found out by like the parents or the aunts and uncles. Like one person got the last word, which was the word the parents heard. And then that person got in trouble and the rest of us were laughing all the way like to the playroom because they're like getting spanked or whatever and we didn't get caught. In that scenario, right, when you call your uh, sibling some sort of derogatory name and your parent only hears you, 
even though you've had an exchange, and they say to you something along the lines of, you need to apologize, and you don't need to do that anymore. I remember as a kid being like, but they called me a name first, right? But they were doing it too. But you didn't see what they did to me, right? That's kind of Saul in this story. Like you don't, you didn't come when you said you were going to come, and you didn't, you weren't here to see what was going on. The army was mustering, people were fleeing, but, 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 but. And you know what my parents tended to do, or my aunts and uncles tended to do in that scenario? They didn't see me as being sorry. They didn't see me as confessing or repenting of my error, right? They saw me as rebellious. And that's what Samuel sees in Saul. He doesn't see any confession. He doesn't see any repentance here. And frankly, Saul's not even given that facade. He's just like, I have excuses. And you know what this ends up being? At the end of this, there is no confession. There is no repentance. In fact, all we see at this is silence. Samuel says, God's blessing is actually gone from you. Your kingdom would have endured forever, and now it's not gonna. And do you know what Saul says to that? Nothing. We don't have any record of him saying anything else in this conversation. If someone comes to you with sin, and you act like Saul, and you try to defend it, the only thing that's left for you is silence. There is no other... If you're not going to confess and repent... That's your only avenue is just to move on. And that's what Saul does, unfortunately. And so we need to be ready to learn from the mistake of Saul. This should have been his moment to to confess his sin and to repent of it. And really, we see that attitude just leads to moving on. Just whatever, Samuel. And he goes and does his thing. The next story here in Saul's life is in chapter 15. Um. So again, the Lord sends Saul to to battle some of Israel's enemies. He comes up against the city of Amalek, and he's going to fight them. And God specifically tells him in verse 3 of chapter 15 that you don't spare anyone or anything. You kill a man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, donkey. I mean, you just like wipe this slate clean in this city, right? Unfortunately, Samuel doesn't do that. Let's read him, or Saul doesn't do that. Let's read in uh, verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to, to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a, a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowering of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And basically what Samuel ends up revealing to him is very similar to what he said in chapter 13. Like, If you continue to read through that, right? He's just like, God is not happy with you. You haven't obeyed the voice of the Lord. Um, and he mentions actually that exact phrase several times. 
And so the gist of this is, right, again, that God comes to Samuel and is like, Saul's off the rails. Like, he's not obeying the commandment of the Lord. I even regret that I made him king in the first place. That upsets Samuel. Samuel's upset. He goes to Saul about it. And Saul doesn't have any clue that anything's wrong when he gets there because he greets him and he's like, hey, blessings to you, right? And when Samuel begins to confront him with his sin, right, and he gets into verse uh, 14, Saul is fully convinced that he's done what's right. right. I've obeyed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel's response is sort of a humorous one. He's like, then why do I hear animals? Right? Why do I? And Saul immediately says what he says in this next verse here, uh, verse 15. Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites. Like the people have brought them around. Like the rest we killed, the people just saved the best ones. And we're going to sacrifice them to God, right? Like we're going to devote them to that. Well, did you notice something interesting about this text? Is in verse 9, which we didn't read, it says, Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. And so there might be some indication here that Saul was being greedy a little bit. But minimally, we see that he was very much a part of the decision-making in this. It wasn't just the people. Like Saul and the people did this, right? And so isn't that a common strategy when when someone sees a sin in your life or you see the sin in your life and you're confronted with it? Last time he made excuses, and this time he's passing the blame, right? Which is kind of a form of making an excuse, right? But it's very specific. You think I did this thing, but I'm actually going to tell you someone else did it, right? That is, a, a, is something that I'm intimately familiar with. Uh, in that same scenario, right, with the kid, like me calling my cousins or my brothers and sisters names, and I get caught and they don't. In that scenario, I make all kinds of excuses, right? But one of them is often, okay, they did it, right? You didn't hear, they were actually the ones that made me do this. And because they did that, I had to do this. Or actually, no, that's not how it happened. It was them, right? It was, that wasn't my voice. That was their voice. Like, you heard them. You got us mixed up, Right? That's what Saul's doing with Samuel. And, and God's already talked to Samuel directly and said, he's disobeyed the command of me. He hasn't heard my voice. And uh, I regret making him king. And so what we need to learn from this is where confession and repentance should be, we might be tempted to pass the blame. I think that's a pretty common temptation. I don't want to speak for everyone here, but I imagine all of us has felt the temptation of when we do something wrong, shift that blame somewhere else, right? Instead of just admitting, confessing that you broke some rule, that you broke your parents' rule, that you broke God's commandment, right, where sin is, and repent of that thing. Saul doesn't learn that lesson from chapter 13. He makes another excuse by passing the blame. And so if you, sorry, let me slide over here. Uh, if you blame others for your wrong instead of confessing it, then your repentance will be reluctant and worthless. 
That's what we learn from Saul in this text. Because look at um, verse 24. When Samuel continues to elaborate on how he has not obeyed the voice of the Lord, in verse 24, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. But look at what he says. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, I think... If we're going to be optimists in this scenario, which I think knowing how the story unfolds is not a fair way to look at this text. But if you're going to be an optimist, you're saying, hey, it's finally clicking for Saul. And maybe this last part is just him explaining what got him there, but he's acknowledging he's still messed up. I think the most fair reading of this text is a reluctant confession. Right. And I think the most fair reading of this text is really a worthless repentance i think this is an allusion to him still holding on to that he's really not at blame look i've i've done something wrong but i did it because the people right in fact if you continue to read through chapter 15 and 16 and 17 and all on through this the rest of saul's life shows that that is how he thinks about this Um, his life bears no fruit of repentance his life bears no um continued confession of these sins it reveals no change in his heart he keeps going down the sorry path that he's on and so what i would learn from this is that if we only uh confess our wrong when uh to avoid consequences that's the kind of confession that we have shallow meaningless short term and it's not true and it certainly won't produce true repentance right he tries to shift the blame there's a lesson there and then when samuel really hits home again his sin in verse 24 he's like oh right there's going to be repercussion for it i won't have the kingdom and god's blessing won't be on me and all these things so you know what i've sinned because the people forced me kind of to well if I, if I confess my sin and I repent of my sin purely to avoid the consequences of my sin, uh, to avoid any immediate hurt or loss, then that confession and that repentance is, is not real, is not true, it's shallow. And God's going to see it like that. Um, in the, continuing with the example of calling my siblings names and being caught... Um, if I were to say, I apologize that my brother made me call him stupid, my parents would be like, uh-uh. <laughs> nope, go back in that room. I'm coming back in 10 more minutes, and we're going to try this again, right? They'd be like, that's not, you're not sorry. Like, you're still blaming them, basically. And in that, that that's what uh, Saul did. And then after Samuel came back to him again with the repercussions of his sin, and he finally says, you know what? I did wrong. That would be like me after my parents ground me for not apologizing and being sorry the first time, right? Uh, That would be like my parents grounding me and claiming, right, you only apologize to avoid being grounded, right? Which I've done before, by the way. I've done in my life. Like, I've apologized and been sorry and contrite to avoid punishment, and more often than not, my parents are able to see through that, right? 
don't you think God's able to see through that kind of stuff? I mean, my parents didn't always get it right, but God's always going to be able to sort through that, right? We need to learn the lesson of Saul. And we need to, when we're confronted with our sin, just confess it. Like say, hey, I did break the commandment of the Lord. You have no gain in doing otherwise. There is nothing to be gained by uh, refusing to acknowledge the fact. Right? God knows what's happened. God sees exactly, very clearly what has gone on. He knows your motivation. So you might as well humble yourself and commit and confess to the sin that you've had and repent of that. Commit to not doing it again. Changing your mind about that thing and leaving it. Uh, go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. We're going to look at David's positive example. So Saul was a negative example. He showed us what it means to make excuses. He showed us what it looks like when you refuse to confess and repent and you shift the blame. He looks like he showed us what it looks like when you refuse or you only confess and repent when you realize that the the negative consequences are going to be big enough to bother you, right? Um, but in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we look at what David's sin does to him and how an honest heart, a godly heart, responds to sin. Okay. So in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, the background here is, of course, David saw a beautiful woman bathing on the rooftop. We find out later her name's Bathsheba. He sins for her. When she comes, he sleeps with her, finds out that she gets pregnant from uh, them sleeping together. She's married, so that's a problem. And so the way he deals with this is instead of confessing and repenting a sin at that moment, it seems like he's just so lost in this whole endeavor that he decides having her husband killed is the best way to go about it. After uh, he was too noble to sleep with her himself, being a man in the army on duty, he couldn't like cover it up that way, so he ends up having him killed. And then when he's finally killed, he's able to marry her, and they're going to have this baby together. And it seems like in David's eyes, he hasn't stopped to consider what all's been going on, and it probably seems like no big deal. Everything's patched over. It's going to be all right. And so just in the same role that Samuel was in for Saul, Nathan comes to, to David. And he is a prophet of God. And it says this beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives, and into your arms gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much, uh, as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. And the Lord afflicted the child at Uriah, that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. And as the story goes on, we're going to see kind of how David reacts to this. But David hears the message of Nathan, and in contrast to Saul, is immediately convicted by it. Saul made excuses, he shifted the blame, and it wasn't after like being beat over the head with the message that he offer any semblance of confession or repentance. Now, I think that that uh, confession or repentance that he offered was uh, pretty fruitless, was very shallow and just kind of words that came out of his mouth. And I think the text supports that idea. But David immediately says, whoever this man is that took that lamb from that poor man who only had the one, He's guilty. And Nathan connects the dots for him that you're that guy. Uriah was that man with that lamb. Bathsheba was the lamb, right? And you just killed that dude to get to his stuff, right? And David immediately is like, oh man. And you know what's interesting about this? I have no doubt that David had guilt for how he treated Uriah and Bathsheba. I mean, there's no way to escape that. There's no way to escape the concept that he had done wrong to them. But you know what's at the heart of all of this? David responds, I have sinned against the Lord. The only reason that it was wrong, really, was because God made it wrong. I mean, if you take God out of the picture, it was advantageous. He was stronger than Uriah. He was smarter than Uriah. He was more powerful than Uriah. Then why not do what he did? But when Nathan comes to him with the word of the Lord and he realizes that he's broken it, he is sinned against God. And it doesn't take convincing. He doesn't shift the blame. He doesn't make excuses. An honest heart sees what's true and in front of them. And when there's sin there, an honest heart confesses it. And an honest heart does exactly what David did. And we see him repent of this. And we see even... Nathan's already told him you're forgiven. And the next whole paragraph is about him like fasting and praying so that the people affected by his sin, specifically his child, wouldn't feel the repercussions of it. I mean, that's the whole next paragraph is about that. Um, And so I think that is exactly what the model of confession and repentance should be for us. In fact, Josh read Psalm 51, and if you go through that, that psalm is about this sin. And he's already been forgiven. He knows it, but he pins the psalm reflecting on that time. And the requests that he makes to God are not like what you imagine Saul's requests to be. Like, God, don't let my throne end. God, like, I'm sorry that the people were a negative influence on me. Psalm 51 is... Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me with hyssop. Forgive me of my trespass, right? 
And he feels so badly about it, he starts saying, you know, I've been in sin since the day I was born. I need God's help, right? Like I've been, I mean, you read that psalm up and down and you get the picture, the mentality of what confession and repentance, where those are born, right? And so David's a great example for us. If you, I won't ask you to turn here, but an interesting commentary on this is keep in mind all the mess that David's done here. Now, Nathan says you're forgiven of that. There's still consequences that he deals with, but like as far as the sin being held against him, he's forgiven. In 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 5, that verse in talking about someone else mentions this. Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. You know why I find that really interesting? Is that is the long view on David's repentance. Like, it is said later that, except for that one time when Nathan had to come to him and confront him with his sin, he lived a life that was in accord, right? In line with all of the commandments of God. You can't say that about Saul. His repentance was non-existent. His effort was not there. His confession wasn't real. But David's was. David had this moment where he was confronted with his sin and used his confession of repentance to propel him towards the commandments for the rest of his life. And so I think as we consider uh, our own repentance and confession, we don't need to make the mistakes that Saul made. We don't need to make excuses. We don't need to shift the blame. We don't need to just try to avoid consequences. We need to manifest the spirit that David showed to us Psalm 51, we need to manifest the actions in this confession, in this prayer, in this repentance. It needs to be a long-term thing. Obviously, none of us are perfect. Romans 3, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that is the reason why we confess and we repent. That reality is the thing that propels us towards these, not away from them. And so uh, hopefully we can learn these lessons. So by being convicted by the message of God should lead us to uh, confession where we own what we have done and we produce a repentance that is determined to leave that offense behind. And so finally, as we're wrapping up here, uh, any instance that I can think of in my life where I produced the, the, the heart and the action that David did as a kid, my parents were always very merciful to me. Like if I responded even remotely like this, my parents like usually didn't even punish me. They were like, you kind of punished yourself enough. That was more of Kirby's arena. Like she was kind of a very tender person. And so if they were upset with her at all, she would just like break down. And so usually they didn't have to like punish her as much, right? That's what God's offering. Like if you will break yourself down, right? That's the idea of humility. You break yourself down and you confess and you repent. God doesn't have to do the things that he doesn't want to do with you, right? And so hopefully we can learn that lesson. So finally, as we wrap this up, the application, right, is God sent Jesus into this world to be Samuel, to be Nathan, right? To show us the sin, to convict us of that sin, not to judge us and to drag us away, right? 
There's plenty of verses that tell us he came to convict us of that sin, but also to heal us of it, to forgive us of it. And so our choice, just like Saul and David, when Jesus convicts us of this sin, is what do we do with that? Do we act like Saul or do we act like David? And so there's plenty of texts that talk about this. God commands us to live a life of confession. You need to be confessing your sins to God, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. You need to be confessing your sins to one another. We need, we need to be doing that, confessing our sins to one another. James chapter 5, verse 16, not just to confess, so that we can be praying for each other. We need to live a life of repentance. Acts chapter 8 verse 22 shows us that we need to uh, repent of our sins before God and pray that he forgives us. Right? Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14. We, uh, we need to be repenting of our sins even before one another, not just so that we do that, but so that we can be encouraging each other. That passage talks about, is there any among you that are weak or faint-hearted? Let us encourage and exhort. And so we need to be living lives before God, where we confess and we repent, but also with each other, where I can confess my sins to you so that you'll pray for me. And I can acknowledge my weakness and repent so that you can strengthen me, just as God's doing. And so while I haven't talked so much about that specifically, that is what God wants from us, and that is what Jesus makes possible. He makes possible a life of confession and repentance because he is the avenue through which God can offer us mercy. Um, so if you're a Christian today, think about that. If you have sins that you need to confess of and repent of, Jesus makes that possible. Take that avenue. That's what your parents wanted for you when you made mistakes as a kid. And how much more is our Heavenly Father wanting that for us? So take that avenue. If you're not a Christian, Jesus is making forgiveness possible but you are not there yet. And so without wearing the name of Christ through your own confession of him being the son of God, through your own repentance of your sins and the washing of those sins away in baptism, you're not in a place yet where God can forgive you. But just know that there's its own form of confession and repentance that has to take place to get there. And that's admitting Jesus is your way and repenting of the life that you used to have. So wherever you are this morning, I'd hope that this lesson's been helpful for you and encourage you. If there's anyone that has a need um, spiritually, God's invitation is always open. It's not ours, it's God's. Um, but if we can be helpful with that, if we can pray with you, if we can show you scripture that might be encouraging or insightful for you, let us help you with that. So think about that while we're singing this song.